service. Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Dear Young Rocker, so a couple episodes ago, I presented my theory that one of the biggest defining factors in shaping our personality and view of ourselves is whatever insensitive thing some rude kid said to us in middle school, usually a boy. But occasionally there are instances on this planet of good boys in middle school who say nice things, and those can stick with us forever too. The more I look at this theory of mine, the more I realize that we really are shaped by just about anything said to us at that age about who we are by pretty much anyone. A parent, a friend, a bully. We might stop having the exact words they said run on a loop in our minds after a while, but the ideas stay implanted in our subconscious. And when we go to write about how we became who we are, those statements tend to come back to us with a singular clarity compared to other adolescent memories, often word for word. As tweens and teens, we start desperately searching for messages that will tell us who we are. So anything that comes our way claiming to answer that question is taken as the whole truth. A rejection from our crush written on crumpled paper because we aren't in the cool friend group. A note on our essay from our English teacher that says, you're a good writer. A parent telling us that we're far too sensitive to handle the demands of the real world. Our young brains use this information to code the part of our hard drive that says, who I am, writer, outcast, wimp. But it's not all passive. We try to collect our own little trinkets to store in that hard drive as well. We might hear a song and think, yeah, that's me. That combination of chords and lyrics is how I feel inside. So we bring it in. Or we see an outfit at the mall and say, yeah, that's the impression I want to give. This process continues through high school and into our early 20s as we choose our friends, our jobs, our partners, what kind of bands we play in. Usually, at some point, we examine all of this. Those of us who don't want to act like overgrown teenagers still trying too hard to be cool might think, hey, Maybe I'm not the impression I give through my outfits or my job or even the art I like or the type of people I've been friends with forever. But it's hard to figure out what you are without those. So, of course, some people just keep living through the tokens, collecting more and more. Houses, cars, spouses, awards, money, whatever. I think people who have a lot of success early on end up stuck there. But for those of us lucky enough to not get famous, I think whenever the reflection happens and we ask, how did I get to be the way I am? We just might start by thinking about who we knew in middle school and what they told us about ourselves. This is all to say that my guest author this week, Wendy Eisenberg, remembers a time in middle school when a friend said something supportive. 
Wendy is a guitarist whose playing and recording spans quite a few genres, but maintains a truly unique musical personality. Whether playing something quiet or loud, feverishly complex or soothing and calm with an undertone of weirdness. And I enjoy all of it. Here's Wendy's story. Hi, my name is Wendy Eisenberg, and my pronouns are they, them. Dear young rocker, you're a few months into sixth grade now, and you're about to have your first rehearsal with your first ever rock band. It's winter, and in more ways than one, it feels like the light around you has shifted from warm gold to cool blue. You remember when you were in fifth grade, you toured the school, and saw the book, Esperanza Rising, leaning against some of the other books in someone else's locker. You were so excited that someone else was reading the same kind of things you would go to the library and check out. Then, you finally got to attend this school and found out it was actually a class assignment. That same flavor of disappointment seems to keep hitting you. The people the school and your parents promised would be interested in you, these people who would be your friends, seem to all be interested in other things, if they are interested in anything at all. During the fall, you watched Scream 2 and syndicated Daria episodes at your new friend Stevie's house, and she, all freckles with a warm smile, would compare you to Daria even though she knew you wanted to be more like Jane. Stevie lived in a beautiful house in Bethesda, with two living rooms and crisp white furniture in her bedroom. You would sit in the back of your mom's car and wait for the gate attendant to let you both in to this rare neighborhood. When the gate lifted to let you in, you were excited to see your friend however provisional that friendship felt. After all, you knew it was lucky to be invited to her beautiful house for a sleepover. Stevie was pretty and popular, with a kind of relaxed energy that foiled your nervous, brainy excitement, bringing it into fun relief. You were cast as the kooky best friend earlier in the year and were never one to turn down a role. The light was beautiful in her room, the day you showed her a few of your favorite CDs at the time, Led Zeppelin IV and Television's Marky Moon. You two danced and gossiped as these weird singers yowled adult masculine secrets that changed the room from sunlit to a mysterious charged dusk. You knew those records so well, and you wanted to sing along, but when you did, Stevie laughed in a passive mixture of kindness and apathy that underscored, for you, how temporary your friendship would be. You were just learning guitar, and it felt like every minute you weren't listening to something beautiful was a minute you were denying yourself a kind of unknown power. It was unclear to you whether Stevie was that excited about, well, anything yet. Before the sun was fully set, the two of you stole a roll of fake grass from the house next door. To this day, I am unsure how exactly you two managed it, but somehow you guys got the roll of sod, leaking a breadcrumb trail of rich dirt into your sixth grade corridor. You and Stevie gleefully wallpapered your friend's lockers marking their assigned doors with dirt and grass. It was a loving prank in its way, but I think you noticed at the time that the dirt wallpaper was like a line demarcating the two castes in that class, the popular and those who the popular called the awkward, 
or more alluringly, the weird. I know, I know. You want me to talk to you about the music. What do Stevie and her popular friends, who never even feigned interest in the music you would always talk about, people like Liz Fair, Sunny Day Real Estate, Nick Drake, and Pavement, what did those girls and their cruel rejection of you have to do with you making music? After all, they stopped hanging out with you shortly after those adventures in Sod. You started wearing heavy black boots and plaid skirts, even though skirts always felt somehow incorrect on you. Your school required that you wear collared shirts, which was okay, because the guys on the cover of the Blue Album by Weezer all wore them. But even then, those were often bowling shirts, working guy shirts, which you liked. These girls who rejected you were so feminine in a way you felt you could never properly own. They looked correct in a skirt. Their J. Crew, their real Ralph Lauren shirts, had more of an actual preppy thing to them, not the ironic aping of preppy fashion by alternative dudes. Still, not music, that's fashion. I know, you're so curious about what touring and recording is like, whether people on the road actually act like Led Zeppelin did in that book Hammer of the Gods. A note, they don't. You want to look into the future to see whether you'll still be doing music, even though we both know you already know this is it for you. Okay, so let's reestablish. Roll the camera back and zoom out. It is winter. You haven't had your first rehearsal yet. You just started to play the guitar a few months after you unceremoniously stopped working with your piano teacher, when that useful mixture of post-piano boredom and curiosity led you to ask your mom to teach you a few chords on her old acoustic guitar. Those early chords spiraled into books of chords you invented by yourself, to printed off tabs from the family computer, to a trip to Guitar Center where your dad generously gifts you your first electric guitar, a beautiful purple thing you'd later rip Pink Floyd solos on. Those early chords gave way to the dense, emotional songs you'd rise from your bed to write, well into the night, when even the moon wanted you to be asleep. In the morning, you would share these songs with your family because you knew, even then, that there was something good in them. Young rocker, you were right. At school, when all your solo songs were resting, you made a new friend. Severn lived in a cool house in Potomac, had a cool name, and wore a tie every Friday. You knew he played guitar. He did not seem to care whether or not he was cool in the specific way Stevie was cool. Severn just wore his tie on Fridays and tried to make everyone laugh with his good-natured humor, a specific early 2000s wackiness you'll come to really miss in the grim early 2020s. Because you listened to the music you read about in Spin Magazine or in YM or on Strangers' Zanga pages, you did not want to admit to having listened to Avril Lavigne's first record as much as we both know you did. However, your unguarded appreciation of Severn's dedication to the tie-in-a-white-tank-top look and the fact that he vaguely reminded you of the front guy of Sum 41 would have revealed that anyway. One day at school, you were wearing a delicious vinyl t-shirt you had ordered from the internet, sitting next to Severn in his tie and slightly oversized button-down. Science class was Mr. Brown, who looked like a composite of every president on the back of your plastic ruler. He shows a video of three reddish-orange anemones thrashing around. Do you see that? Severn whispers to you, his lab partner. What? You respond. These little anemone things. Do you hear this weird music they put behind it? No. He says excitedly. They're headbanging. You could see their little fingers moving like an active crown. What are they called? 
Did you hear Mr. Brown say? He replied, they're called Stomphia. A few weeks later, Severn invited you to his house to play music with him and a few of his friends who went to different schools. Maybe he had caught wind that you played guitar or passed you practicing during lunch. When your friendship with Stevie dissipated, you found yourself straddling the cool, uncool axis in need of new friends. Severn came at the right time. You guys decided to name the band Stomphia before you even joined. Severn's house was big, but you and your mom or dad didn't need to go through a gate to get to it. How can a house have so many oriental rugs and nice paintings and still seem unpretentious? The lighting there was cooler, less orange, but instead of the cool blue of loneliness, it was a silvery, dusty coolness like potential. You felt your heavy boots ascend the wooden stairs, your gangly legs gently flailing in a nice, satisfyingly excessive movement hands shoved into corduroy pockets, and your purple guitar in a gig bag on your back. You get to Severn's rehearsal space, a little attic next to his room that was so cold. All the most important times of your life seem so small when they're happening, and enlarge as if under a microscope with retrospect, expanded like how an errant drop of water can enlarge and round a printed word. I wish you could tell me the exact date of this first ever rehearsal, I can feel you there, your nervous hands trembling as you plug in the amp, as you fidget with the battery compartment of your distortion pedal, as you thread the cables from amp to pedal to guitar. The small crate practice amp you had at home didn't have as many toggles and dials as Severn's amp. What did a standby switch do? Severn had a little music stand set up near the amp that had some notebook paper on it, with chords written out on them. You just started to get better at bar chords and felt ready. Even though you were a long way from where you wanted to be on the guitar, even though you were so shy in this rehearsal that you hardly spoke but to make excuses for not knowing how to set everything up, when the boys grew quiet and you tore into the first song, you felt a confidence and grace that, I can say from my perch in the future, still endures. Do you remember that you learned this music so fast? You were only a few months into playing guitar at all, but it all came to you so quickly. You were a natural. And you set up such an interesting configuration for yourself that would come to define the way you continue to work. You would write so many little songs, these dear folk experiments in secret, often shirking sleep, while at the same time you were really starting to thrive in a band. It was a cover band mostly, though Severn sometimes brought in his originals. For whatever reason, even though you were not shy about playing your own songs, you kept them to yourself. Stomphia learned music mostly by ear, though sometimes from tabs you collected into a three-ring binder. You played In the End by Linkin Park, Killing in the Name of by Rage Against the Machine, and Stay Together for the Kids by Blink-182 with these funny, focused dudes, near strangers except for Severn. For the first time, repeating something didn't feel pointless. Every time you played Adam's song, you got mysteriously more fluid, quicker, and more settled into the music. You played loud and stomped your big muff pedal with increasing authority during the choruses of Smells Like Teen Spirit. How would you react if I told you that that would always be that satisfying? You develop a small perfunctory crush on the bassist, a guy with peroxide blonde hair gelled up and wolfish blue eyes nicknamed Hairboy. But that's not important. He was never a major player, nor did you ever really think he would be. The major player was always Severn, your friend. 
There was so much care between the two of you. No competition at all. And most importantly, the glinting filament of a crush never once sparked between the two of you. Stomphia practiced weekly and eventually changed its name to the slightly more pragmatic Red Tape. You were still quiet during rehearsals, almost introspective, even when they eventually, inevitably, called on you to do some of the singing. You find that the kind of close attention you pay to your playing in a band setting is almost profound for you, as opposed to the freewheeling, almost unintentional stuff you do in the songs you play by yourself. Why does singing feel easier than talking in band practice? When will the vapors of everything you think is happening, your silent estimations of the music and the private social world of the band, find the strength to be verbalized? Why are you so judicious and quiet in band practice, almost wise in your curiosity, when in any other context, words just seem to fall from your lips and get you into trouble? A girl in our class, Kat, invited us all to the pool for the end-of-the-year party. She lived kind of close to Severn and Hairboy in Potomac and knew about Stompia slash Red Tape and invited us to play her party. A nervous chill crept over you whenever you thought of this party, despite the increasing warmth brought in by the end of spring. Instead of thinking of the friends who had scorned you, Stevie's crowd, you thought about how your classmate Ava's sister would probably be there to drive Ava to the party. This girl knew everything about Radiohead, a band spin magazine kept telling you you should check out. You listened to them, vaguely liked it, and you uncuriously looked up Radiohead facts just so this girl would think you were cool in case they ever came up at the party. Young rocker, this is a clumsy move. Ava's sister hated everything except for Radiohead, probably including you. It wasn't personal. All was not lost, however. You'll come to find that looking up facts about bands you only sort of like is a really fun pastime for you. Meanwhile, you ardently practiced the songs Red Tape decided should be in the set. The songs rang through your bedroom, or in the room where we kept the little crate amp and the increasingly dusty piano. The repetition would drive your mother crazy. The last practice before the pool party, your nervousness coalesced into a kind of internal fireball. Hairboy and the drummer had left, and you and Severn were hanging out in his loft bed feet dangling out over the edge of the bed in the light where your faces were cast in shadow. You had been practicing White Stripes songs that day. Next year, you and your dad would see them play a basketball arena in Washington, D.C. Tiny people moving ant-like in front of a big screen showing old Felix the Cat cartoons and a red, white, and black lighting show. Severin sensed something was amiss. Wendy, what's going on? You sounded good today, but you were quieter than usual. You remained quiet but your left foot started to jiggle, and you, despite yourself, curled to look at him rather than remaining fixed with him in a tandem perspective. Eventually, you worked up the courage to say, hey, yeah, I know. The music was pretty cool today. I just feel pretty nervous playing this stuff around all these people. Severn looked at you with patience and a friendly focus. What's freaking you out about them? Nobody seems to dislike you, and they did ask us to play. Well, I don't know. Your face grew hot. I think, uh... You started playing with your hands. It's not that I don't think we're going to sound good or anything. It's not about what the band does. It's just... These people don't think I'm cool. I'm always tense and they're just like, I don't know. It's like someone told them how to act and they all know how to, like, be cool. 
He was quiet for a second, considerate, compassionate. What do you think about Karen O? It seemed like a non sequitur. Fever to Tell had just come out, and you really liked it, especially Maps. You liked how the chaos of the cover art was mirrored on the design of the CD itself, too. It looked so cool spinning around in your Walkman. You'd heard stories of how Karen O was a wild performer, jumping around on and off the stage, singing with her particular acetone voice, while her dark-haired bandmates supportively swayed, relatively reserved, to their own sounds. Uh, I don't know, Sev. She seems cool to me. So unique. Do you have any idea why? I know why I like her. You got quiet because you wanted to hear why he liked her, and also because you wanted to, in advance of whatever he says, tell yourself you could never be like that. I like her because she's like herself. I don't think she's the kind of person to compare herself to anyone else. She's wild and really weird and dresses so cool in her own way, but it doesn't seem like she cares about what anyone thinks about her or how she like goes about her life. He got kind of quiet and looked at me with a casual gravity. I think you should try to be more like her. She doesn't compare herself to other people, or at least I don't think she does. She's really powerful and brave, and that's the kind of person you want to try to be like. I wish I could tell you you heard that moment as the rare thing it was. You had a comrade, a band member, a young dude with no romantic interest in you, with no ulterior motive, tell you to go against the kind of femme socialization that was hitting you so hard in school. Your family was supportive of you being such a reader and such a music nerd. Well, your mom and dad were, if not your sister. However, Sev didn't have to support you. He just did, and wanted you to do the most important thing, the easiest and hardest thing of all, which is simply to be you. Sev was always himself. He met people where they were at, which probably explains how he got through to you even though you were really sad about Stevie and her group of friends icing you out. But that brings me future me, to another point. Something I believe that you remember from when you were Stevie's friend. That day in the fall in Bethesda, that you and Stevie listened to those CDs together and stole the fake grass, you had been talking with her about your feelings about Miss Spire, the English teacher who you thought clearly had it out for you. You were making some point about how she always was really harsh on your essays and way easier on Catherine's, who was your seatmate, and Stevie said, I don't think you should compare yourself to others so much. You were like, huh, probably not. And then promptly kept comparing yourself to others nearly forever. I'm sorry to say, you will still have to fight pretty actively against that practiced habit well into what they call adulthood. But when Sev said it, he was reinforcing that forgotten advice from your old friend, who probably possessed secret wisdom when she wasn't acting like a popular sixth grader. He was looking out for his bandmate. It might have seemed minor, but his little vote of confidence in you, in Karen O, in weird, high-strung rockers with nervous energy everywhere, rings in your ear still all the time, from the wings of fancy stages and cramped green rooms all over the world. Later, you'll even play a few shows with the drummer of the AAS. So what happened next? You played the pool party with your band, made an awkward comment about Radiohead to Ava's sister during load-in, and kept writing secret songs. People seemed to like the band, swimming happily in the Maryland sun, grateful for an end to a tumultuous year. You wore cool baggy jeans and an incongruous bikini and drank sugary lemonade between songs. 
Then you went home and probably wrote a song about that. Okay, I can't send you off on such a treacly little note, can I? I want to give you some gifts from the future before I go. Gift one, choose musical partners that believe in you the way that Sev did. They might not be as explicit about it, and you might not be getting life advice from them in their bedrooms, but you know how he saw you. You were his equal, and you complimented each other. Look out for that kind of companionship and respect. The work you make with people like that will feel better and probably sound better, too. Yeah, and on the work stuff, you know this already, but those little things you make up on the guitar that aren't songs are worth something, too. You can already feel that you're interested in stuff beyond just what one genre can say. Trust your curiosity about different sounds. That curiosity is telling you which paths to follow. And notice, I say paths, plural. Don't let anyone say you can only do one thing, one style of music. You know how natural the guitar feels for you. Why limit it to one type of expression? I know you're going to get good enough at the guitar for people to want you to play in their bands. Please remember, don't take jobs for the money that feel personally offensive to your music self. Don't date anyone who seems lukewarm about the music you make, because it just means they're lukewarm about you, or intimidated by you, which is on them. You are so creative that you need like six different means of expression to get your impulses out there. Don't compromise on any of them. Find the people who love all of them and love all their sides, too. That goes for life stuff, too. You know how when you feel the most like a girl, you feel kind of artificial in a really pleasurable way, like you're keeping a delicious secret? And how when you act like a bro, you're lying in a way that feels equally pleasurable? You might not know the right words for this yet, but this is you questioning and playing with your gender. I'm calling from a future that taught me some words you can use to make that gender play a more explicit part of yourself. You're going to find that by using gender-neutral pronouns, they, them, you get to question why people are separated into categories that restrict them. You don't want to lie about who you are. Neither do the men and women and non-binary people who feel hampered by the identities male or female that were chosen for them as babies. Commit to honesty in all aspects of your life. Gender, music, whatever. Don't agree to things that make you feel like you're lying. Also, don't lie and say you like stuff or have heard of stuff that you haven't. Okay, finally, the big gift. You've already heard this one. Remember when Stevie said not to compare yourself with others? Severn underlined it, and because you actually trusted him, it was finally audible to you. If you're comparing yourself to others, you're always at a loss because you can only see them from the outside, where they feel static and perfect. By contrast, you know yourself only from the inside. You don't know how you look, how you move, the small gestures that people will come to love about you because you're too busy doing them. That's grace. All I really want to tell you is to keep on doing you and to try not to look at you too closely. Looking closely at music and words is more fun anyway and feels less weird and self-absorbed. You learn best by doing, so do what feels right and fun and funny, and do that a lot. When you lose yourself in your music, that's how it feels to be, and that's when I know you to be the happiest. Being happy and feeling good about what you're capable of and letting people see all of your many sides. That's what I want for you, to feel joy and creativity and not judge yourself for that. I can't wait to see what you do and how the world will change for us when you take all this to heart. I love you. Rock on, young rocker.
The advice Wendy gives to avoid looking at you too closely and instead focus one's attention on music and other things is pretty good, I think, for someone who is young enough to not even be totally sure who that you is yet. They're still building the scaffolding of themselves, and things can change by a lot every single day. Too much analysis can paralyze that natural, messy process of constant change. There's plenty of time for that introspective midlife crisis later, kids. Wendy's story stood out to me this season, and I wondered what they thought about writing it. One of the things I realized when I was lucky enough to talk to my past self is that I've remained pretty much the same person since I was 11, which you'd think could be a kind of harsh thing to say, but it's actually the best. Like, I think from the beginning, I was interested in the same stuff. I just didn't have the vocabulary for it. So it was really cool to come back like in a, an angel from like the future and just be like, hey, you're, you're going to be okay and you're going to be the same. So it felt really restorative and comforting. And then, of course, I needed to know if Wendy got anything out of the experience creatively. And I was pretty excited by the answer. So I write a lot of songs by myself and I write a lot of songs in bands. And when I did this, when I got to chance to speak with young me, the songs that I started to write afterward were a little bit more emotionally open and like less opaque. Because as you'll be able to tell, I, I tend towards the like kind of icy intellectual sometimes. And that I don't think that that's the best part of me. And my hanging out with my younger self made me a little bit less like that. Yeah, I mean, your younger self is like, always with you. I feel like some of us have seen Last Jedi in that scene with like Ray, where Ray, there's like a zillion rays in like a mirror room. And you can see all of these like different and you know, it's like such a trippy kind of commonplace image, but it just totally works. And hanging out with 11 year old me is like, hanging out with the same me that turns into a jerk when they're really hungry or something, but like is a lot cooler than that. <laughs> I don't know. It's like a very animal thing, but not in the sense that like younger people are animals, just in the sense that you're closer to something real. Yep. That's one reason we do this. To get closer to something real. And for the record, knowing Wendy in real life, I've never viewed them as an icy intellectual. Just someone who likes to play with language, like myself. But I know well how using big words can get you into trouble. Speaking of big words, Wendy put out an album called Dehiscence, as well as one called Auto, over quarantine. They are also part of a band called Editrix that put out an album called Tell Me I'm Bad a few months ago, which I also love. Wendy also has some brand new stuff in the works, so give them a follow. And when I asked about causes and organizations they support... Wendy recommended a really good idea, which is for everyone to educate themselves on the community fridges in your area and see how you can support them. If you don't know what a community fridge is, I will provide some links to figure that out in the episode description. Two other important organizations Wendy mentioned, which I will also link to, are Glitz, G-L-I-T-S, and Black and Pink, who have different approaches to doing incredible things to support LGBTQ people in crisis. So check all that stuff out, as well as Wendy's music, and take care, you little rockers.
Next time on Dear Young Rocker, we'll hear from LG of the band Thelma and the Sleaze about her early memories of being a poor kid, getting a random guitar lesson from a Mormon missionary, and becoming the feminist rocker she is today. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis and iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. It was created and is produced, written, and hosted by me, Chelsea Erson. I also created the theme song. Colin Fleming helps with sound design and mixing, and Auto Clamor provides editing and production assistance. If you enjoy this podcast, please, please let me know by sending in a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also hang out with me virtually by following at Dear Young Rocker on Instagram. Please do not hesitate to send me a message there. And also follow Double Elvis for news about all of our new cool music podcasts. And if you'd like some snazzy DYR buttons or a t-shirt, go to doubleelvis.com shop. As always, the best thing you could ever do for this show is to share it with someone who you think would like it or just everyone you've ever met. Thanks, rockers. Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Productions. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.